Welcome back to the Muzzle Blast Podcast, the official podcast of the National Muzzle Loading Rifle Association. This week we've got a presentation from the 2020 Horn Fair from the Honorable Company of Horners. We're listening to Carl Dumkey. Carl is a master horner in the Honorable Company of Horners. Carl's giving a presentation on the history of European priming horns. It's a really fascinating presentation. It was my first year out at the Horn Fair, and I've always been interested in powder horns, just as it's another way to make another piece of your kit. But the guys at the Horn Guild really take it as far as they can go, as far as period correctness, accurately recreating original horns, taking pieces of horns and kind of mixing and mashing them together into a new horn. It was really interesting. So I hope you enjoy this week's episode. It's a little different. Um, if you'd like to see what Carl is talking about with his presentation, we have a YouTube video online as well. Should be coming out the same time as the podcast. So if you want to see the visual aids involved with Carl's presentation, be sure to check out that video. It's a full recording of the entire presentation, so you can't miss anything. Be sure to check that out on the official NMRA YouTube channel. I have a little COVID-19 information to share as well. Um, it's been kind of a roller coaster of, a pa- of the past couple weeks. Um, originally, we were supposed to be at the Kalamazoo Living History Show today. So it's really thrown a wrench in our plans. Um, thankfully, we were able to get out to the Horn Fair and, and get this presentation. But uh, the next couple weeks where we had things planned, uh, we we're going to be on the road, has all those events have been canceled. So um, we're going through a lot of the old Muzzle Blast archives and reaching out to a lot of kind of our personal resources here in the NMLRA to continue to bring you interesting stories and content through this COVID-19 situation. Um, there haven't been any huge cancellations on our end so far. Thankfully, our large event in June is a little ways off. So we're waiting to hear what is going to happen with this for then. Um, right now, we've set up nmlra.org slash COVID-19. So no matter if you're listening to this now or in the next couple months, if this is still going, be sure to check out nmlra.org slash COVID-19. We'll have a link in the show notes. We're keeping that updated every day if there's news on things that are getting canceled or postponed as far as NMLRA events. So that's the the place to go. Keep an eye on what's going on with us in regards to the COVID-19 outbreak. One last thing before we get started here with the episode. If you're stuck at home and can't go out and shoot or can't go out and camp or get with your buddies, be sure to check out Muzzleloader Magazine, muzzleloadermagazine.com. We've been working with them for a long time now, just as another partner in the community. And if you're looking for more muzzleloading and living history to read, please check out Muzzleloader Magazine. Jason over there does a wonderful job, and uh, we're working on getting him on the show to talk about the magazine. He's a really nice guy. Please support their magazine if you can. Now's a good time. I mean, we're all kind of stuck at home, so be sure to check out Muzzleloader Magazine. So today I wanted to give a presentation on uh, European powder flasks uh, in general. Uh, my goal here is not not to go down here's a litany of powder. What I want to do is I want to try to paint a picture of where did the power flasks come from and how they came to the colonies and how we changed to what we know as power horns today. So that's the, the overall goal. Uh, a lot of this information was compiled through uh, museums. It was through a lot of uh, auction houses uh, within uh, Europe themselves. Uh, most of the dates are pretty accurate. There's some that 
uh, are a little bit uh, in question as far as exactly uh, during that century where they occurred, but most of them are pretty, pretty true to nature. So for today's discussion, if, if you know anything about European power class, there is a litany of examples, and uh, they range in you know, a significant number of uh, materials to the point where uh, I wanted to, to kind of pare it down and really focus on mainly uh, shaped or hollow bovite horn or stag amber. I just want to touch on stag amber because um, I just like it. And I'm doing the presentation, so I get to uh, unfortunately, um, I'm not as entertaining as, uh, as Clint was yesterday. Um, I did not wear my skirt. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> it's no a skirt. It's a kilt. So, so that's what I want to focus on, on today. So in an overview, this is what I want to talk about, I want to discuss today, is, is basically looking at the history, the arms of progression of manufacture, because uh, really, without the arms, there's no power plants. So I want to talk about the socioeconomics and gunpowder, because that's critical to uh, the formulation of flasks and how they, they come to be. Uh, we'll look at forms, and that's where a lot of those examples are going to come into play. I'll move pretty quickly through those examples. Some of them are out on the, the table out there. Uh, the more elaborate uh, versions of those flasks uh, are in museums, so I can't afford those. So, uh, and then really the, the focus on, on kind of wrapping all up with the colonization frontier and the transition. How do the flasks come to the colonies? How did that progress into what we know as power horns uh, you know, during the FNI period or the revolution? How do we get there? So we'll start with the history of arms progression manufacture. Uh, really when we start looking at it, the firearms transitioned into Europe about the 15th century. You know, it's kind of interesting because uh, a lot of those firearms you saw, you know, we all know from school that gunpowder originated in China, it made its way to the West. You know, how did it make its way to the West? Well, mainly through uh, the Ottoman Empire, right here, uh, we see the Ottoman Turks and the progression of the firearms and the associated power plants. So it's really interesting to understand that. The earliest firearms uh, come from Otepa, Estonia, about 1396, is a very rudimentary type firearms. Uh, at that point, you know, we see the expansion outside of the Ottoman Empire, usually through border trade with what begins Eastern Europe and into uh, Southern Russia. Uh, the focus uh, on the firearms tends to be two things, twofold, military and aristocracy. The military because they're the arm of the aristocracy, and the aristocracy uh, because they can have it, because they can afford it. Uh, originally, the, the, a lot of the terms that you see in early firearms, arquebus, uh, derived from a German word, Hockenbus, uh, hook gun. Uh, it's a general term, it's a very long gun. You know, and, and the accuracy, which was minimal at best, was achieved through a long weapon. Uh, as I talked about before, the Ottoman Empire in the 15th century, we see the matchlock starts to come out of that uh, versus just the regular um, fuse that was associated with a slow match that was associated with basically an iron tube with a vent port. And so you just touch the vent port with the slow match and off it goes. As we start to see the match lock appears in, the, in the, about 100 years later, we start to see actual mechanisms occurring with the 
mainly during that time period, you start to see the uh, power flask. And as you can see the, the picture, you have not only the main flask here, uh, which is what I call a, a trapezoidal flask, uh, and you also see a small primer flask here. Uh, the interesting thing about this, and we'll go into this a little bit detail later, is these type of flasks, some of them also had a leather pouch associated with them, where they actually had cartridge holders uh, on that flask, usually three to four cartridges that were built into the flask itself. So it's pretty interesting. Um, a lot of times the, the weapons were made into those matchlock and wheel like military weapons. So uh, it's much like the aristocracy. You saw a lot of those very ornate flasks being tied to a specific weapon because of the same manner I'll talk about that uh, here shortly. A lot of times, uh, the professional military soldiers, the musketeers, uh, as you see that progression uh, in the 1500s, you see a lot of those, uh, and I, what I term is the mass production of flasks at that point. And we'll, we'll see some examples of that here shortly. A lot of the earlier flasks, uh, they're basically a wooden base that's covered in leather or velvet, sometimes horn, sometimes ivory and bone, uh, and it usually has a metal furniture holding it all together. Uh, the typical powder flask body is a metal state, metal base and spout. It's a lot of metal hardware attached to uh, a very uh, specific size and shape uh, of a flask itself. You know, powder horns, uh, originally they were uh, tied, you know, as we see them now, as a very vulgar form. You can kind of take it, you know, for its work, but, you know, it became more refined. You know, if you look, uh, do an internet search on, um, German power flask, antique power flask, early power flask, you see some tremendous artwork. So with that tremendous artwork, like anything else, came with a tremendous price. So you can imagine where you know, the, the little soldier, which some of the flasks that they carry, are still very ornate. But as you rise up in rank, you see more and more uh, ornamentation within those flasks. It becomes more of a status symbol, and, and it's kind of like a lady's purse. The nicer the purse is, the more expensive they are. This is, a, this is a really interesting painting. This was a <coughs> very large painting that was commissioned by Duke uh, William the, the Fourth of Bavaria and his wife, Jacobea of, of Baden. Uh, this depicts the, um, uh, an actual Roman bat. Uh, and it's kind of interesting because uh, at the end of the day, it was Julius Caesar. It was about 52 BC uh, and it's, uh, really an interesting aspect because what we see here is in this period of the firearm we actually start to see the art uh, of the, the period formulating into taking original things ancient things and tying them to modern technology uh, and what's really interesting about this painting is that this is the gaelic wars julius caesar um, and the, basically defeats the Gauls. This is what Julius Caesar, who is uh, outside of Rome, he's actually uh, kind of forbidden to come back into the, the city of Rome because of corruption charges going on. And so this is Caesar versus uh, Vercingetorix, who is the, the Gaul commander at the time. And this is the Gaul where Caesar defeats the Gauls. Um, and what's really interesting about this is that the, the artist took that ancient theme of 52 BC and tied it to modern warfare. 
And so as you see here, you see the, the power flask here and here all throughout this painting. So you know, there's a little bit of politicized because you, you start to see the, the Germanic eagle, you see um, some of the other uh, French fleur de lis flags that are flying in the background. It's a giant painting, but it kind of shows you how the power flask and the, uh, the gun starts to influence art, original art. <clears throat> this is another, uh, this is a, another painting. It's a Battle of uh, Marciano, uh, and that's in the Palazzo Vecino in Florence. You can start to, you can see not only the main flask, but also the, the small prior flasks that are associated with that. And so as you go through a lot of the paintings of the period, you start to see this pop up over and over and over again, not just with you know, the, the aristocracy, but also the common foot soldier. Here's several examples of, you know, we have tapestry. This is a watercolor. Uh, it's uh, basically depicting the, the, the supplies and the stores for uh, period shooting range. Uh, you can see the flask here. Here are the uh, more vulgar flasks as you would, uh, as Roland terms them. Um, and so you start to see this, and here's the, the slow match. Uh, and so it starts to become prevalent within multiple avenues of the art uh, community. This is, this is one of my favorites. This is um, the resurrection of Christ. So amongst the, the audience of the resurrection are soldiers. and. Here's the here's his uh, you know more basically your, your bag that holds your lead and things like that. You got your flask, but also around his neck is that small priming flask. So here's here's a depiction of the resurrection of Christ, you know, a thousand years before the event of gunpowder, nevertheless power flasks, and you have them depicting. This is actually in a, in a church altar in northern Germany. So moving on with the history, you know, basically as we start to transition from, you know, it's already part of the military stores to start to look at where are the power flasks other than the military. It's mainly looking at the aristocracy. It's mainly made for higher ranking noble officers within the military, but more so with the nobility of the court. You see uh, the hunting is for novelty elite. Uh, a lot of the flasks that you see in this period are matched to the, the weapon, like I said, for the very one eight, much like this wheel lock here. You see the amount of ornamentation, nevertheless, this, this is just awesome. It's just phenomenal. So there are elaborately, uh, you know, a lot of iron turnings, a lot of, a lot of forged work that is very uh, focused on fine hand. Uh, we see more, uh, the elaborate goes to the aristocracy, the, the more plain starts to scale down to the lesser nobles, to, uh, and, and so those are who are owning the guns at the time. Uh, a lot of the, the themes are either hunting or religious, so very rarely are there anything other than, you see some of the military flasks of the officers, they focus on military service, uh, some sort of uh, depiction of a musketeer uh, horseman, those type of things, or very ornate Pierce work that are associated with Moving on to, you know, we, we kind of get an idea of what is occurring and then the, the material that, that's being used in the flask. But what I want to focus on here is what occurred? Why, why did the flask become so prevalent? And so when we start looking at that, we have the Ottoman Empire here. We talked about that before, 13, 1400s. 
they're actually using uh, a power class as part of their same military. Uh, so we start to see that transition and that movement uh, into uh, what would be southern to middle Germany. The Germans were, were I would say, the, the arms power brokers of the period. Uh, they were the, the, some of the best armors that you could have. And all these armor shops uh, of the medieval period transitioned with those same type of skills into the new Poland warfare. Uh, a lot of the uh, main focuses, you have Milan, Italy, that's, that was another one of those. Uh, Northern Italy tends to be uh, what I would classify as the Tyrolean region, where you have really southern Germany, Austria, and northern Italy, that region, that was very prolific as far as the armor is concerned and the production. Uh, Germany, like I said, was the hub. A lot of areas uh, in southern Germany and then over in Dresden, you see a lot of the Saxon class that we'll show later. Uh, but then you also have the secondary hubs. These secondary armors, uh, as you see here, you've got the Royal Workshops at, at Grand Show, started by Henry VIII. Uh, and ideally, what they did was they didn't have the technology, they just imported it. They brought the, the, the class makers and the armorers into, you know, mainly they were some Italian, but mainly German and Dutch. And so they imported that talent into, uh, into the UK. In France, we still do see some of this as it transitions down into that region. Uh, Paris tours, uh, and that will come into play uh, as far as later as we start to see the early 19th century. We'll, we'll kind of visit that later in the, in the presentation. We see the firearms like we talked about before. They, they came from Estonia, uh, and they're now in this period, and we're talking about the, the um, early 1500s, becoming a solidity of that type of capability within uh, that middle to southern Germany. So now we know how the uh, weapons got to be where they were. But now we want to look at why. So we talked about before the socioeconomics are driving the acquisition of power classes because they're you know, associated with the guns that are, are coming into those regions, but they're becoming very in vogue with a lot of the aristocracy. Uh, hunting is a status symbol. You know, a lot of times when you start looking at that, you know, and that's true even today in Germany, the owner of the land owns everything on the land. So if you go to hunt on the land, uh, if I go boar hunting in Germany, I shoot a boar, well, I owe uh, the trophy and the meat to the landowner. If the landowner sees fit, then they can give me back some of the meat, but guess who's gonna keep the trophy? If there's a trophy stag that you take on a property, guess who's going to get the damage? It's not going to be you. It's going to be the owner of the property. Uh, ideally, it's a privilege to hunt. Uh, everything else is equated to poacher. So in the medieval period, oftentimes you were put to death, uh, not for simply the act of poaching, but simply carrying the weapons to poach. So at the time period, uh, if you look at the arrows that were used by uh, poaching archers, uh, they were, the stag arrows were, were pretty significant. You know, you were only allowed to carry blunt, what are called blunts, which is an arrow that has a blunted end. Uh, and basically they said, you can hunt rabbit and some of the birds if you want. But you, know, you were carrying the stag type killing arrow, uh, which is kind of a broadhead today, then guess what? You know, you were headed for a block. So with military, we see that, that transition of weapons, 
um, the, the increase in the weapons changes, but the, not the style of warfare. So you're still looking at this period where during the medieval time period, you're fighting shoulder to shoulder, same thing. They didn't change the style of warfare, they just changed the weaponry. Uh, at this point, the classes are starting to become the, the kit uh, for the soldiers afoot. Uh, you see that also within these areas, within the soldiers, the cavalry, as well as the artillery officers, uh, as we start getting into more and more candidates. Uh, and this is, this is what we'll talk about a little bit later in the transition. The, those type of flasks start to accompany the soldiers that, that arrive into the new world. And with that, you start to see, uh, as we start getting into the colonies that we'll discuss later, you have a very small military force, but you also have the militia. The militia, you have stores, and we read about it all the time, especially uh, during the revolution where the British tried to, to capture the armory at Williamsburg. You start to see where the militia then comes into play because it's it's more cost-effective economically to have the militia than it is to have a standing army. And the militia, this goes back to uh, the ready archers, is what I term is, you know, in the medieval period, you had mandatory archery practice on Sundays. You had to perform that every Sunday so that you were a ready militia for, for the crown. So now we're, we'll kind of go through the forms and what I classify as you know, the, the common, common forms. As I said before, with the internet, you can find forms that are just defy imagination. They're just absolutely stunning. But those were specifically designed for uh, either specific guns or specific commissions by the aristocracy. So the main form that I found across the board is that you have uh, what I call triangular trapezoidal, which is that it looks like a, a big triangle with sweeping curves in the side. You have curved trapezoidal. This is uh, the flattened horn. Uh, this is the majority of the, the European flasks follow this, this type of form. You also have the, the circular flasks, conical. You have the fork. This is where the, the stag comes into play. And then also the, the pear type flask that is mainly focused on the later section as we start getting into the, the eight, late 18th century uh, to early 19th century. So, so the, the main, the earliest forms, uh, as we see, are the triangular trapezoidal. Uh, a lot of times, the flasks, like I said before, German in nature, we're, we're looking at Saxony, uh, that's owned by Dresden, that's kind of, uh, say, uh, eastern central German, uh, to all the way down to uh, northern Italy. Um, the earliest known surviving uh, trapezoidal flask is about 1530-1540, and that's in the Stadt Museum in Munich. Um, and if you see a lot of these, there's provincial museums and castles that contain a lot of these collections. Uh, ideally, the production drops uh, early 1600s uh, as we start to get more and more, um, I'd say, economical, because uh, while these flasks right here, which are the trapezoidal flasks, uh, it's time consuming. It's time consuming because you've got not only the metal fitting, but you've got also have the, the base, which is also wood that has to be formed as well. 
So like I said before, you got lane, large main and small flask complement. You know, you got um, the main flask that's usually worn on a fog. That it, it can be worn on a belt. There's one uh, that's a Germanic flask that has the original belt loop on. And that can also be mounted on what was a frog, and I'll show that to you here in a moment. This is one of the, and a lot of these flasks, they, they either had a uh, velvet or uh, leather component that covered the wood. Uh, this was really unusual. There's not many of these that are round. Uh, this is a, a bone or ivory. It's kind of hard to tell because you can't really see the cross section. The photo's not close enough. But this is a great example of uh, this type of, of flask. It's um, common with it, but this, this flask was actually created in, in Saxony, like I said before. Uh, it's only about just over five inches tall, so it's not very big. So I think it's more of a priming flask as far as that's concerned. So lanyard suspension. Uh, and a lot of these, like I said before, you have that attached shot pouch that's associated with it. Some of these flasks I'll, I'll go through pretty quickly because, you know, like I said before, I just don't want a bunch of pictures of a flask, but it's important to understand what was out there at the time period. This is, you know, this is a Saxon in origin, I believe Saxon. Uh, and you start to see as we'll get into the Spanish type, this is kind of that uh, early vulgar form that you see some, some of the artwork. Uh, it's really unusual because you have the, it's a wheel lock. Uh, here's the spanner for the wheel lock. Uh, and uh, a lot of iron hardware is still with uh, that bowline horn. And so this is the one that you see a lot of in that painting, the Battle of Alicia. That's a Caesar's battle. This is what I'm getting at with a lot of the, the flasks as you start seeing them in the military. This is a more formalized officer's type flask. It's a lower nobleman. Uh, you start to see a lot of the, the pierce work. Uh, this is about uh, 1585, you know, early, I'd say late uh, 16th, early 17th century. Uh, it's more ornate than the typical soldier, and this is what we term as that curved trapezoidal. That's that, that form that we start to see that becomes very prominent within Europe. These are, are the, the most common. These are pretty much the, the foot soldier's flasks that we see, the musketeer type flasks. Uh, if you look at that, a lot of the, the same type of hardware, similar shops, so you start to see the mass production that goes along with that. This is where we start to getting into the, the flat, the actual Germanic flasks, and it's an interesting aspect because I think that these originally didn't come into Germany through the Ottoman Empire. This is where we start to branch up towards what is now southern Russia and into eastern Europe, and I'll get to that here in a few minutes. Uh, a lot of these, uh, this is a uh, Nuremberg style. Uh, a lot of these flasks, uh, one of the, like, uh, Bill Carter's, you know, the, the religious scenes that you see, St. Hubert, you know, you, you get that religious scene that goes in here. So it goes back to a lot of these scenes are, are religious in nature or they're hunting. Oftentimes they're only carved on the front end because the back end is so much wear in the time period. But uh, one thing to remember is that uh, with a lot of these flasks, which are hunting flasks, who's carrying them? Who's carrying them? It's not the nobleman, it's the person that's the loader. So you even see that in the aristocracy up until you know, the early 1900s, the, the gentry 
A lot of times they didn't load their own weapons, they just grabbed another gun from the loader. So oftentimes it was a showpiece more than it was, you know, the person actually using it. You do see this, this type of flask, uh, it kind of ceases and then it picks back up in the Victorian area as you see a lot of the, the, the Germanic resurgence of that, that type of revival. So it's pretty interesting uh, as we see that go from uh, period piece uh, in the 1600s all the way up into uh, the mid to late 1800s. This is what I was talking about before with the transition. Uh, this is an interesting form. This is a um, Carpathian era flask, or regional flask. Uh, Carpathia, I'll show you the next slide. So this was interesting because it's still, for the most part, they're still somewhat professionally engraved, but you start to see some actual folk art start to appear in these areas. And uh, a lot of times, uh, they influence a lot of those Germanic and Scandinavian type flasks. As, you, as we look at a lot of the engraved Scandinavian class that are very rudimentary engraved. They're very faulty as far as that's concerned. Um, this is the you know longest form and it is in existence, uh, early 16th century use. Uh, mainly focused on red deer, uh, and really they looked at the symbology that goes along with that, dealt with the mystic, dealt with the environment, dealt with magic as far as that was and so in the Carpathian regions, where we start getting into uh, Romania, Transylvania was, was a, a hub for a lot of these flasks. And that whole Eastern European uh, atmosphere is that, that's where you get into that same type, type of stylization in the folklore themselves. Uh, often they're portrayed as male and female forms. Uh, as you can, I'm not gonna, if I've gotta explain that to you, then we can talk a little more. Um, but really, you do see in the central part uh, of the antler, you'll see a lot of the female type of form. You'll see uh, floral designs, the rose, you'll see the sun, you'll see those type of symbology. Uh, and these uh, is where you get the, the more upper forked part of a stag. In, in Germany, the, the red deer, it becomes a, a what's called a Koenig uh, Hirsch, which is a king's deer, because the very top tines of the antler start to form a crown. And so that's where you start to get some of these male form stags versus the female form, which is more the, the basal part of the antler. This was a fascinating piece, and, I, and to look at the size, it's just tremendous. You know, when you're looking at the size of the, the flask itself, it's over 20 inches long. So that's a big flask. And so the interesting thing about this is this is a scap <coughs> scapula of a, a red stag. Uh, Germanic in nature, uh, but the interesting thing about this, it's not just one shoulder blade. It's two shoulder blades that are, are formed together. It creates, uh, up here at the, the spout, they've actually formed the two sides to create the cylinder. Really fascinating. This one uh, is at the Victoria and Albert Museum in London. Uh, a lot of metal furniture, but just the engravings, you can tell, are very Germanic in nature. So pretty fascinating. This is where we start to, to see that Carpathian region uh, as we go. It's, you know, once again, it's aligned with the Germanic centers here, uh, as well as the, the southern area of what is now Russia. And, and as we see that progression, you know, that, that was, those were two avenues. You have the, the Russian North Italy, and then the other one coming up into uh, the Baltic states. 
This is another, this is the, the round form. Uh, this is actually pressed form, so we start to see more and more progression of form, uh, as well as you know, the, the regular trapezoidal. Here's an example of, uh, of a bone flask. Uh, you, you see the, the typical uh, Germanic engraving. And so, like I said before, we'll, we'll kind of not really fly through these, but we'll get through these pretty quickly just to show you the, the, the uh, variety of flasks that were out there. This is about uh, late 1600s. Uh, what we see here is lead oxide. You know, the French were very adapted at creating lead oxide, so that was, that was intrinsic to what we see. So when we start looking at the future, how do we get a burst spotted form? You know, it's already evident within the European uh, continent at that point. So as we see the progression into the colonies, guess what? The same individual, the same colonists are bringing those trades with them. This is where, where we start to see uh, a common uh, period, is the late 1600s. We see the, the wheel lock spanner here, and the engravings start to become more uh, prolific at that point, and they start to take on more of a regional flair. These are some of my favorites. Uh, if you look at a lot of these uh, styles of engravings for a lot of the German forms, they are very, very similar. You can look at them and say, automatically, that's Germanic form because of the, the style of engraving. Uh, and like I said before, uh, professionally done, uh, goes back to this theme of, of hunting, religion, military profession. Those are the, the three main things. Here's another flask. You can start to see the, the commonality, not only in the construction here, and we'll kind of uh, talk about that later as we look at the question of, and I'll put this word out with Tanzel family. And it's a kind of an interesting uh, postulization of why the Tanzel horns take the form that they do. Once again, we see that the same type of Germanic uh, engraving. Very similar, very much uh, regionally focused on the center part of Germany. <clears throat> then we also see the, the transition into the what I would say the, the Dutch area. We see the different designs, but also uh, the same type of form starts to transition into Western Europe. There's more and more issues in Ibex, this is probably Tyrolean. You know, because that's where they live, and guess what? That that was still a, a center for a lot of the more elaborate forms of flasks. This goes back to what we we're talking about before, and we saw the, the one battle scene with the, the type of more vulgar flasks. This is uh, Spanish in nature. It comes into Spain, but also we start to see examples of this uh, down in the, the southern U.S. and in the the uh, Spanish-held uh, territories. Uh, around four in those type of areas. Here we see the Scottish horn. This is kind of what Clint was talking about. I think it was very prolific within that region. You still had the, the um, Highland cattle that were taken advantage of. So guess what? This type of uh, form makes its way from Germany to Holland, down to France, over to the UK, up into to Scotland. So it becomes very prolific as far as you know, that form is concerned. 
the Germans were, were fantastic. It wasn't always, wasn't, was not only the engraving that went into uh, that type of stylization, but you also see this type of bas relief that goes into it. So uh, you see this more and more where, once again, we're still focusing on more gentry versus nobility. And so this is, this would have been an extremely expensive power class. Going down the scale of the gentry, now you see the pocket flasks of the period. These are very common, uh, so we start to see more and more production. Uh, but at the same time, if you look at this curve, and that's the one that's on the table out there, look at the complex curves that go into that. The Germans knew what they were doing with premiums. They knew what they were doing through the arms manufacturer, so it became common that they just transitioned into the powder flasks. This is the same type of uh, German example, but it's a little more ornate. Uh, the amount of hornwork that goes into that curve, as well as uh, the uh, carving that goes along with the actual forming of the, the horn with the heat. These also, once again, they start to create more and more uh, simplistic flasks at certain points, but they also start to incorporate the zoomorphic uh, type of um, uh, characteristics, and you'll see more and more of the as we go uh, throughout the historical aspect of it. Here again, you start. This was really, really interesting because you have the Germanic type engraving, but but you also have that uh, fish mouth or duck mouth type. Uh, zoomorphic influence uh, in those German flasks. This is the same one. This was uh, once owned by Russ Young. Uh, once again, we see that that influence with that that long pocket flask. You know, if you think about it, period address the time. You've got large pockets. That's where it's going to go. <clears throat> Here's where it starts to get into the, the bar relief again. The, the amount of work that goes into this because this is impressed. This is carved. And so we see that, that amount of carving uh, originating across the horn to the zoomorphic spout. And you see that in these fine examples. Those are uh, late 1600s, early 1700s. Once again, more Dutch, Dutch type horns. And this one is, is on the table. Uh, I think that this is Dutch or English based off of the uh, reclining lion. Uh, but you see that the Jaeger. Uh, gun here that basically Germans progressed into um, you know, the hunting sports of the period. These are, you know, this is a little bit of, not bone of contention, but there is some question here because uh, a lot of these show up in Norwegian stores, um, but you also see some similar examples uh, that in form that come from the Germanic area. So it goes back to uh, the question, is this a Norwegian produced horn or is it a German horn that was sold as far as an arms agreement into Norway? And so that's, that's one of those things that we're still looking into, but uh, we've actually got a couple of examples of this on the table, but I've seen several other examples that are throughout the guild, and that's why it's really cool to see this. Here's this, uh, this form up to the late 18th century, the zoomorphic. Uh, we start to see this type of transition. Uh, for a little bit later, think Tanzel. Um, I know it might be a little bit of a stretch, but yeah, I'm going to go there. Uh, 
Um, so that's kind of a, a neat form as we start to see going from a basic form to more uh, professionally carved forms. So now, you know, that's kind of a smattering of horns, but the main focus I want to get on is the transition. How do they get from, you know, the forms in Europe over to the colonies and within that area? You start to see uh, the transition in, in the uh, late 18th century, early 19th century transitions from uh, a lot of horn to industrial revolution. You see more metal flasks that start to come out more more horn flasks with metal fittings and metal valves, things like that, that are associated with it. So technology is changing within that period. This is where they, you said the late 1700s, early 1800s, we start to see the, a lot of the French flasks. Uh, there's quite a few of them out there. Um, Walter has a giant tub full of them, so lucky you. <laughs> so, you know, you see a lot of the, once again, the metal furniture starts to come back into the flask because it can be mass produced at that point. This was, this was to me, was fascinating because here you've got uh, a French flask, uh, more advanced fittings. This is probably uh, early to about 1820, possibly. Uh, but the uh, impression on the horn you got a row of hounds and then a row of boar. And that's throughout this, this design. So the amount, you know, the French were very adept at pressing horn. And so this was really, really fascinating to, to see this example. As I said before, that, that early uh, Tyrolean type Carpathian uh, staghorn uh, back in the pier that was heavily made, guess what? It, it starts to, to come back. Uh, this is uh, about 1830, 1840, you see this resurgence in a lot of German activity. You see a lot of these uh, tied to those German Jaeger bags. Uh, so it was very, very uh, prolific at that point, once again, at the higher levels of the gentry. So this is, this is really the, the neat part of the presentation. So uh, we want to talk about colonization, the frontier, and the transition. Uh, this is Christopher Columbus uh, arriving in the New World. Uh, if you look at the, the uh, shoulder, he's got the same type of trapezoidal power flask uh, on this period engraving. Flask of the New World. You know, as I said before, guess what? The, colon the colonies come in. Um, the early colonies, you know, you've got the Puritan movement, but also the early, earliest ones were economic in nature. You have companies that would sponsor uh, as a business venture for these colonies to, to start up. So you had a very small military associated with them, but you also had a standing militia that could accompany them as well. Uh, you have the Virginia colony, the Puritans in Massachusetts, uh, as I said before, the, the Spanish colonization of the South. You had a limited standing military because all they did was military. You know, the standing militia allowed them to be tradesmen, farmers, and then when called upon, they could, you know, uh, acquire their, their weapons and their flasks from the armor. Uh, the interesting part about it is we have documented uh, documents that show the existence of power flasks within the new world. Uh, this is from Jamestown Dig. We see the, the metal part of the flask, which the the wooden or horn part of it 
has deteriorated over time uh, due to the, the environment. Uh, but we also have um, documentation on the plastic being there. Uh, Captain John Smith, uh, of note, uh, 1609, he's asleep on a, on a boat, a uh, small boat uh, north of Jamestown on the York River. Somehow, there's some contention on this, a ember lands in the spout of his power flask and explodes, causing him to have significant burns. He jumps over the side of the boat. Uh, he's he almost killed him. So it's a fairly large burn. He ends up being transported back to England for recuperation. About this time, shortly after he leaves, you know, this mismanagement of the colony starts the starving period where we all hear about the colonists, you know, eating belts and each other and all that other fun stuff. Um, throughout, uh, you, you look at a lot of the probated wills of the period, uh, you start to see some, some of the arms and armament that are uh, probated in the wills. Uh, this one is uh, Armistead Lightfoot. In his uh, will, it talks about uh, two large powder flasks that are associated with his uh, material that he has accounted for in the court. So we start to see the, the growth of, of commerce within in the colonies, you know, and that's kind of interesting. This is a satirical uh, engraving of the of the period. You see, um, uh, here's the cow. Uh, this is uh, Holland, Spain, uh, Spain, and France. They're all milking the cow. Uh, in fact, the American here with the feathers in his cap, native feathers. He's cutting off the horns. Uh, you see the, the British lion is asleep. Uh, the dog is, um, you know, uh, befouling the lion while the, the British merchant stands idle, kvetching over the, the lack of commerce or the, the inequality of commerce in the new world. The other aspect is, you know, we start to see the growth of cattle within uh, the, the colonies. At first, it fails. It fails miserably because they're trying to apply animal husbandry of continental Europe to the colonies. It's a different environment. It's not until much later that they finally get the hang of it. And as the colonies become more agrarian, then they start to understand what it takes to harvest uh, the cattle as well as conduct a lot of the operations to actually acquire them for them. You know, like I said before, it's not just about powder flasks, it's how do we get there from here? You know, a lot of the cattle production, like I said before, uh, originally it, it came up here from the south. Uh, there's still uh, cattle up here that have their lineage that are associated with Spanish cattle that come in, as well as the cattle that comes in uh, through the northern uh, campaign areas, Nova Scotia, as well as directly into the, the American or the continental colonies of the period. Uh, the interesting thing about this is the mass importation of cattle into North America ceases about 1640, which means what? It means that the cow production is sustaining itself to the point where, guess what? It becomes a viable industry within the colonies. And it becomes so viable that it really starts to affect the European marketplace. Like so for stock increases through intercolonial trade, uh, and it floods the European market. Along with that is the population. You know, now you've got, you're growing your own food, you're growing your own industry, guess what, the population also increases. 
the trade within the colonies started mirroring the continental Europe for the time being. Uh, if we look at the immigration alone, from 1790, you're at 950,000, you know, a little bit later, it's probably 100 years, I missed that. This is 1690, this is 1790. Within 100 years, you're at 3.9 million colonists within the new world. Let me go back to the war aspect. This is, this is really kind of interesting because uh, I talked with, with Roland and I talked with Art about uh, some of the military stories that goes on within uh, the early French and, French and Indian period. And one of them was uh, when the uh, uh, General Forbes and Colonel Bouquet started conversing between Carlisle and, and Philadelphia, and they're looking at uh, sieging what is now Fort Pitt. Uh, the interesting aspect is uh, there is a uh, exchange of letters where uh, Colonel Bouquet says, "I need power horns," and so. Uh, you know, they start to look around and say, well, they're, you know, General Forbes is in Philadelphia. He says, well, I can send you 20 dozen now, and I can send you 28 dozen, you know, in a few days to a week. So if you do the math, that's 500, almost 580 power ones that they're able to collect within that period of time. And so, you know, that's, that's the interesting thing about that. And a lot of times, you know, and it's kind of interesting that because art, uh, highlights that in his book. Uh, it's available for $70 on his table, and he takes orders pretty regularly. No problem. Thanks for the But the really fascinating part of this that drives all this, when we talk about what's going on in Europe, it comes over. So, you know, the, you know, Washington and his troops, they, they look, hey, we need horns, we don't need cartridge boxes. The, the, the provincials, they don't know how to make them. Well, they, they kind of do, but they don't have the time to make them. You know, they're running through the woods shooting. They're not, it's not like the, the, the regular soldiers that are standing, you know, side by side in line warfare. So, and plus, if you look at the, the rangers that happen, uh, that occurred, you know, it's cumbersome. It's easier to carry gunpowder and and ball and load your gun up. And so, if you look at that, that's that's a significant number of power horns that they're getting from Philadelphia, which means that the industry is there. Not only that, if you look at Sir John St. Clair, who's the uh, quartermaster general for the the British during the period, he's a baronet that's here in the, here in the colonies. Uh, you see a supply list that. Uh, he is providing to the, the Native American allies, the Cherokee and the Catawba Indians. Those are both southeastern tribes that also came up to help the, the British during the campaign. So he lists uh, essential stores for those allies, 500 horns that he's, he has on the list. So there's over 1,000 horns, 1,000 power horns that are starting in the industry. So you look at the the period around Philadelphia, that's a huge undertaking. So the, the amount of shops within Philadelphia to be able to draw that many power horns uh, is significant. And, and that's, that's really kind of a, a neat uh, view into how prolific the industry was within the colonies. Here we'll take a look at uh, kind of the transition. And some of these horns are really interesting. 
um, because it, it caused you to raise the question of the styles that come in, are they influencing the horns that are being made in, in and around Philadelphia and around Pennsylvania in these various schools, whether it's York, Lancaster, uh, Berks County, those type of things. Uh, a lot of times at, at the very beginning, European, it's uh, similar construction, but you start to see you know, an advancement in the sense of, I can create more horns in a simple, simpler fashion, but it still has a certain art form. Here's a, a German horn, uh, and it's all, this, this is all carved, it's one tip. But what, when I saw this, the first thing that came to mind is this collar, collar, uh, looks very burst. But then you look at the, this, the actual spout part, boy, if that doesn't look kind of like a, uh, an early York horn, some stylization, maybe a, <coughs> Lancaster style of horn, you start to see the influence. Guess what? It's a German horn who's coming into the colonies in Pennsylvania, a lot of Germans. So, uh, you know, you start to see that aspect uh, in the horn work. And it creates that question of, you know, in, in Europe, you already have screw tips. You have screw tip horns there. So it's, it's a natural leap of faith that says a lot of that comes into the colonies, start to influence you start seeing the, the lead oxide, you see the screw tips, you see those aspects start to permeate themselves within the solids and the colonies. This is another example where we start to see this form starts to take off and it starts to go from a more professionally, professionally styled horn into what was carried in, in the pocket of, you know, uh, just a local hunter or farmer on the, on the frontier. Same example, you see, you see this type of form, now it starts to take on, instead of professionally made horn, professionally engraved horn, now you see it start to take on a more folk art type, type style. And if you, you look, here's the, the compass rose, and uh, you see the heart, and some other aspects, you know, it goes back to dramatic influences. Well, if you take it farther back than that, you start to see, you know, Eastern Europe influence, you start to see go into, you know, Central Asian influences as we start to see the artwork. So when we start to look at these forms, you know, we say, well, those Pennsylvania Dutch. Well, not originally. You know, you, you see that in a lot of uh, Islamic uh, region, the, the Central Asian type of art form. So now we start to see this lineage of art that goes through the power class into what we think is full part, where it was high style in, in a different part of the world. Same example, we start to see this, this type of form. Uh, this is uh, Pennsylvania, from Pennsylvania, Providence. Uh, but it was found in Pennsylvania, but where did it originate? Now, I think it was a, a German, followed Germany into Pennsylvania, and it carried a lot of those characteristics that we start to see as we, we look into some of the screw tip forms. In fact, if you look on Jay's table, there's a, a screw tip form that, look at the spout, and it, it looks awfully familiar. This is another one that, that Roland and I talked about, um, Eastern Pennsylvania Providence, but we start to see how that transition, you know, look at the, the, this part of the, the powder flask, and you, you can start to imagining, you know, engrailed, you know, F and I period, 
that type of, of structure for that flask. So, you know, some of the conclusions that I came out of, you know, looking at, uh, you know, a bunch of flasks in museums, other collections, as well as doing the research, not just with flasks in general, but what, what is the history behind how these flasks came to be and what was driving those factors. Uh, South Central Europe, like I said, they were the power brokers for a lot of the, the armors and weapons that came out of that. Uh, the Germans made great stuff and they were even greater at selling it. Uh, the advance of the gun, it equates to the advance, advance of the flask. The more uh, advanced the gun became, the more advanced the flask became. You know, you look at uh, some of the, the long rifles, Kentucky long rifles that, that occur within the colonies, and a lot of the flasks, while they're not as ornate, are much more intricate in, in their construction. But they can be constructed very quickly. As we talk about the socioeconomic shifts in demand, it goes from the gentry to the frontier. And so that's, that's a huge leap from the, the continental Europe over into the colonies. Uh, the curve of trapezoidal, that's the most pro prolific that you see across the board. Um, it can be a great flask, but it's usually not the most ornate, more, most detailed flask with the most professional engraving. Uh, colonization, that's the key to the changing market on everything. It's not just the flask, it's on you know, glassware, it's on pewter, it's on everything in this economy. <laughs> and then the market fuels the advancement of the powder over the corn in those colonies. Because if you look at it, the, the last interesting uh, tidbit is the horn production in the colonies becomes so prolific at a point that uh, the worshipful company horners can't compete. They, they petitioned the Crown to create tariffs on horn coming back into the colonies. It gets to the point where they have to form a collective, and much like you'd see on a farm collective, where they're participating with other, other horn entities, but it comes to the point where they just can't compete. And then the changing market, you see uh, glass and pewter starts to take over what used to be occupied by horn, and so the industry starts to die. And that's when, about seven, late 1700s, you see the worshipful company of horrors uh, stop being a production and more of a social organization. And so this is where you start to see the tapering off of horn in general. But you can also see the road that the, the power class takes as it goes from, uh, I'd say, Eastern Europe into you know, the Ottoman area, Turk and make its way over here. The final thing, when you look at the German class with the, the fish mouths, and this is the, the final thought, is you know you look at that and you go, well, that kind of, I don't know, let me make the, the, the logical leap into the Tanzel family. Well, the, the farthest back that we can uh, really trace the Tanzel family is back in the France. But however, guess what? If you take the Tanzel family name, guess where it comes from? comes from Ottoman Turk. So it's really easy to see that transition that could have those Germanic influences of the fish mouth into you know, southern France before it comes over here to the colony. And starts the Tanzel brothers start to take that and change that, but are influenced by what happened in Europe. So that concludes the presentation. You know, can I entertain any questions?
Yes. But in the very beginning, when you were showing the uh, the artwork and the circles around the bottom, they seem to be more in the reverse of where uh, colonial war about church. Is that intentional, or is that the artist's fault, or is that a no? It was it was intentional because you see some of the the forms that were there. Um, you know, it, at that point, if you think about it. You know, you're you're trying to create a large uh, supply of those type of materials for that type of standing army. So it's easier to put a cap and a plug on one end than it is for somebody to turn both ends. So it's it's a I think it, from my perspective, it's a uh, it's very simplistic form. You're trying to outfit a large army. It's very easy to make that type of flask versus the more ornate trapezoidal type flasks. Yes, your picture of the. French lead oxide decorated horn from the Berks County region transition. Some of the Huguenots came from that region, yes. the Turks and the Torts and all of them would settle in that area, bringing that French influence in Germany. Sure. Yeah, and that's that's exactly the case. If you if you look at the the amount of, of German population that flows in during that time period, you know you've got. Philadelphia, it's a huge port. It's, you know, I find art, it's like the second largest city during the during that period of, of time across the world. So it's, it's a huge city that's full of commerce. So, and that's the, the, one of the main ports of embarkation into the colonies. So you have, you know, the Germanic influences, mm -hmm. you have the Irish, a lot of the, the Scotch-Irish uh, became frontiersmen, and, you know, they, that's why you have a lot of Intermarriages between, you know, in the southern U.S. between the Scotch Irish and the Cherokee and the Catawba Indians, and so you start to see that influence that comes into the colonies. But you know, that's like, you know, whiskey, you know, stills and things like that are very prominent down there because of that heritage. Um, but yeah, that's exactly the case. And that's that's where you see that that capability coming into the colonies. Anything else? All right. Thank you very much. I appreciate. It. We'd like to thank Carl Dumke for allowing us to film and record his presentation, as well as distribute it online and share it. Carl worked hard with the Horn Guild to make this year's Horn Fair really great. Again, it was my first Horn Fair, but it was a fantastic event, and I'm really looking forward to next year. We'll have links down in the show notes for the Honorable Company of Horners, as well as Carl's work. He's not just a horner. I've been watching him on Facebook now for a while, and he gets into some leather bags and some other nice accoutrements. Just a reminder, if you want to see the visual aids and some of the pictures included with Carl's presentation, we have the full presentation on video on the official NMLRA YouTube channel. I'll have a link to that video down in the show notes so you can catch that and kind of see the visuals that go along with it. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.